But in Romans chapter 15, there's an outside chance we may finish the book today. Oh, no. But we'll see. Because chapter 16 is, we're going to deal with that, but chapter 16 is not difficult at all. The end of the book here, um, we see the heart of of Paul as a pastor. Uh, we see him make some comments, some of which, particularly as we look at these next couple of verses, starting with verse 14, are not new. We've seen him say these things before. We've seen him make this kind of an argument. But we also see, which I always am excited about, we see his plans of what he wants to do. And he's very specific in what he plans to do, which we'll see in verse 22 and following. And then chapter 16 is his um, greetings from a lot to a lot of the people in Rome. And it's amazing that list of people, because eight of the people in this list of about 20 are women, which is really important. And it, it catches you off guard at first. Organized around five house churches, which we will look at when we get to the, to the chapter. So let's begin. Now, remember... I don't think I need to orient you to the context, but Paul has brought his his instructions to a conclusion of what he wants to teach the Roman people, the churches in Rome, about the practical outworkings of their faith. Justification by faith is the thesis of the book. He has argued that beginning in 1 verse 16 all the way through the end of chapter 11. And it's complex what he does. He deals with a lot of aspects of that, both very theologically and doctrinally and very practically. Verse chapter 12 through what we finished last week, 15, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 13, are the practical outworking. What does the justified life look like? So he's concluded that. Now he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness both all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Honestly, man, that's an extraordinary verse. And we, we read it and we see all those nice flowery spiritual words like goodness and so on. But notice what he's saying to them. I am satisfied about you. Now, what does he mean by that? He's satisfied with where they are spiritually in their walk with the Lord. But he's also satisfied, and I put it this way, with their spiritual maturity. Now, what, what we know is he has not yet visited the Roman churches. There are five house churches there, as far as we know. But he hasn't visited, but it's all the feedback he gets. Is he's heard from a lot of the different people that are his friends and so on. And it's just an amazing statement. He's satisfied about the maturity. What is, why? Well, the content of that satisfaction, that you're full of goodness. Now, that, that term focuses on their good works, how they are sharing their faith, how they're living their faith, how they're helping meet both physical and spiritual needs of people and so on. Filled with all knowledge. So that's content. That doesn't mean, you know, the... the the multiplication tables or the alphabet. He's talking about spiritual knowledge, the doctrinal truths of what it means to be a Christian. And then he adds, able to instruct one another. Now, I, as you know, I read from the ESV translation, 
some of you may have a, they may translate that a little differently. Because the Greek word is nuthateo. It's an unusual word, but it's usually translated admonish. It's usually translated admonish, but, or even sometimes warn. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating comment that Paul is making about these churches in Rome that he's never visited yet. He will visit it, as you know. That's recorded for us in the book of Acts. But here he's just saying what he knows about them, what he's observed about them in their writings, as well as what he's heard from others. He has some very laudatory things to say about these people. But that most important, in my view anyway, is they are mature enough, they have enough of doctrinal understanding, all knowledge, that they're able to instruct, admonish, warn one another about dangers as well as the affirming things that go with challenging people to spiritual maturity. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes there about leadership in the church, about maturity in the church. He says, we, we are doing all these things, lists a bunch of things, all these things to equip the saints for ministry so that you all may be mature, able to stand against the winds of false doctrine and false teaching. Very similar language here about what he, as he characterizes the Roman churches uh, in, in this time frame. I just think it's an extraordinary verse, a very affirming, and I think that should be, if I can be bold enough to say it this way, that should be the characteristic of the mature church. A mature church is a church that's full of goodness, and remember we talked what that means. It's the outward expressions of your faith, the good works, helping people spiritually, physically, in terms of their needs. You're filled with all knowledge. There's been that instruction and sound doctrine, but the end, end result is the equipping of the saints for ministry, in this case, that they may admonish one another. That's spiritual maturity. And that's really something he's saying this about this church in Rome. Now the next verse. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, we, he said this over and over again. This isn't something new. He's just affirming his primary role has been a role of, the, of ministering to the Gentiles. He calls himself in another part of Scripture, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. So we know that, we run it, but don't forget, this church at Rome was largely made up of Gentiles. And we will read some of those names in chapter 16. But notice, notice the words that he uses here. Because the grace given to me by God to be a minister of the Gentiles. In the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So this is unusual for Paul. Peter talks about this in his epistles. Paul rarely talks this way. But as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he sees his ministry as a priestly ministry, a priestly work. And he's using the language of the Old Testament and fitting it into his ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's using the language of the Old Testament, fitting it into his ministry as a minister to the Gentiles. Priestly service of the gospel. Offering 
so that the that's the intended result, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. What is that acceptable? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he uses those three key terms, those priestly terms, priestly service, offering, and sanctify, be made holy, being made holy. I just find that intriguing. All of a sudden, we're running out of room in this class. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice problem. I mean, it's often been the case two or three show up. Now today, it's really wonderful. So yeah. try to get out of the cold. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the book of, of Romans. It's the running out of the cold. Don't be both today. That's Okay. Why do you think he does that? Now, at one level, we don't know exactly because we're not Paul and we're not under the inspiration of the Spirit. But just think about that with me for just a minute or two. Why does he use Old Testament language, writing to Gentiles, to talk about how he sees his ministry to them, the Gentiles? Before he was trained. You trained one of the mm-hmm. rabbis of his day. Yep. Very much, very much trained. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Yep. So that's kind of natural for him, I would imagine. The, the, the Old Testament um, was mainly towards Israel, was all towards Israel, and, and this is to bring the Gentiles and Israel closer together because they are actually one. In the church, in the new institution of the church, they are one. I, that, Fred, that's, that probably has a, a little more to do with what, what he's trying to do here. Because don't forget, and, and I, I know you know this, don't forget when it tells us in the New Testament that they're reading the scriptures, that they're reading the scriptures out loud, which is what they did in the early church, because no one had their own Bible that was too expensive and everything was hand copied. So, they, their main scripture they're reading is the Old Testament. And to read the Old Testament, you're going to be exposed to this stuff all the time. And one, that's one of the things that Peter does, particularly in his letters. He uses a lot of Old Testament language to describe and challenge and exhort and admonish the New Testament church. He says to them, you are priests of the Most High God. That's an Old Testament phrase. But in the context of the New Testament, this is really significant, too. It's really significant because a priest of the Most High God, you would use that in the ancient, in ancient Israel, in Israel before Jesus shows up, as the enemy. The priest always came between God and the people. The Levitical priest were the intermediaries between God and the people. When Jesus died on the cross, he was resurrected. What happened? That was done away with. Now you have 24-7 access to God. You don't need a priest. You are a priest. That's what Peter says. That now Paul. So I see what I'm doing, and I'm a priest ministering to the Gentile, so that they will be sanctified. And so he's using that Old Testament language, which is the language they would have been exposed to, because they would have read, they would be reading the scriptures, which is the Old Testament. There were a few New Testament books. The early Mark was written in AD 49. Paul's letter to the Galatians was written in AD 49. But most of the New Testament letters are written later. So it's just, it's just fascinating. You probably maybe aren't as fascinated by that as I am. Because you look at it and say, why is he using that kind of language to a bunch of Gentiles? But 
when you, as Fred just said, and as I was commenting a little bit further, it, it makes sense why he's doing that. Then notice what he says in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, or to un, you could translate that, therefore, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And you said, hold, hold, Paul. That sounds to me like you're bragging. It sounds to me like you're boasting. He is. <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. Because he, say, he says this over and over again in his New Testament letters. You are, I mean, whether it's Colossae or Ephesus or here or even in terms of the Gentiles in Rome. This is why I do what I do. And I boast to the Lord about you. You are the fruit of my work. You are the sacrifice of my work. You are the burnt offering. This is the language he uses. So he says, I have reason to be proud of my work. I'm doing. Remember what he said. I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. There in verse 16. And you are the fruit of what I'm doing. I'm proud of that. But it's... (laughs) It's a Holy Spirit-inspired, proper dimension of pride because he's doing what God wanted him, asked him, called him, empowered him to do. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He's explaining his pride. That four there is a garb explanation. He's explaining what he means. I will not eventually get anything. I'm not boasting about my speaking ability. I'm not boasting about my writing ability. I'm not speaking about uh, how many. I don't keep account of how many people I've discipled. I don't have an Excel spreadsheet which details it. That's not what we start. I boast for this because I speak only of what Christ has accomplished for me. He is the instrument, he's the vehicle, he's the channel that God has used in his ministry. That's what he's boasting about. This is why Paul will say over and over again, what motivates me is the high calling of the prize in Christ Jesus. He writes about that in Philippians uh, 3.14. So it's a, it is an, it's an acceptable understanding of pride. This is an arrogance and hubris. This is, I have done what God asked me to do, and what he has accomplished through me, you Gentiles. <laughs> it's sort of exciting. He understood his ministry, understood what God wanted him to do. Jim, this, the whole book, Old and New Testament, is God's breathing through humanity. Paul happens to be part of that element of humanity. He's saying, I don't I don't boast sure. of myself. Sure. I boast of what God has given to me and to you. And I'm telling you about this. I'm so pleased to deliver this message <clears throat> of freedom in Christ Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. Now notice. At the end of verse 17 and then through verse 18, he explains, again, this is nothing new. 
but he explains how, how did he minister to the Gentiles? How did Christ accomplish through him what Christ wanted him to accomplish? By three things, three means, three mechanisms, three very specific instrumental mechanisms. First, by word and deed. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. What he spoke, what he said, what he preached, what he taught, and how he lived it. Because, listen, you know this, I'm going to remind you, I know we've talked about this before over the years in this class. The proclamation of God's truth must be lived for it to be seen as genuine. What so many preachers in the past have done, I, I'm not getting anybody in mind, I'm just using it generally over 2,000 years, is they preach one thing but don't live it. That's not genuine, that's not authentic, and it's not going to work very long. One of the, there are several, I'm thinking of so flitting through my mind here, and I'll choose not to name them, but individuals through the history of the church who taught one thing but didn't live it. Their ministry didn't last very long. Because that is not communicating authenticity. That's not communicating transformation, which is the key to the gospel. It's not only hearing it, it's responding and then living it. And a, a father who wants to model before him, teach before his kids the things of God, had better teach them, but he better live it. Because if he teaches them and doesn't live it, what's going to happen? It's going to go in the kid one ear, it's going to go out the other ear. It's not going to take hold. Because my dad doesn't live what he teaches. My dad does not live what he says. Why would I do it? So now this is really important. I know you know this, but Paul does not say just by what I taught, but my word and my deeds. I walked the talk. Isn't that the right way to say that? Yeah, I walked the talk. What I talked about, I walked it. I lived it. But secondly, he says, by the power of signs and wonders. Now, that little phrase, signs and wonders, is used numerous times in the Gospels of the works of Jesus. It's used in the early chapters of the book of Acts about the, the, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, doing signs and wonders. A good, and it's used now, Paul, Paul does this, and you see that too in the book of Acts. Not as much in Paul's ministry. But signs and wonders is a phrase used in the New Testament. Actually, it's even in the Old Testament, too. But it's used of messianic miracles. In other words, these miracles validate the message. That's what Jesus did. The Old Testament said, you will know the Messiah by what he teaches and what he does. He will heal the sick. He will give sight to the blind. The deaf will hear. He will raise people from the dead as he proclaims the message of the kingdom. Paul is doing, Peter did that. John did that. James did that before he was, was, was uh, uh, martyred. Paul did that. And you see that particularly at the end of the book of Acts. Signs and wonders is to draw the attention to the message. A messianic miracle draws attention to the Messiah, and that's Jesus. Can I do a quick bunny trail here? You go to chapter 13 and a little bit in 17 and 18, 
you see the same phrase, signs and wonders, used of Antichrist. Antichrist will do signs and wonders. Because antichristos, that's the Greek. Anti can mean against, but it also means instead of. Because antichristo, antichrist, the beast, as he's called in the book of Revelation, will be the substitute Christ. And Jesus said he will be so effective in his work that if I did not return, even the elect would be deceived. That is an extraordinary statement that Christ made. And so that little phrase, signs and wonders, are the messianic miraculous acts, in this case of Paul, of an apostle, to connect what he's preaching and declaring with Jesus as the Messiah. And then finally, he says, because there are three, three key prepositional phrases, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. And in some ways, that's the most important, because that gives you the insight that we need. The supernatural power of God's Spirit who indwelled him and empowered him is the reason he is boasting to God of what God has done through him for the Gentiles. Well, it's right in the text, by word and deed, by the power of the signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. He's explaining what he meant in the previous verse, what Christ has accomplished through me, bringing the Gentiles to be. How'd you do that? By words and deed, by the power, signs, and merit, wonders, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jim, this is Woody. Yeah. Hey, yes. Uh, that, uh, tell me again, what book and verses for where it says the Antichrist will do signs and wonders? Uh, that's a good question. Especially you will see it in Revelation chapter 13. Okay? Thank you. You bet. Now let's look at, let's look at um, the end of verse 19. So that, now that, now I hope you don't mind me doing a little grammar every now and then. So that's introducing a result clause. So what's the result of this, Paul? You say you're proud of my work for God, and you just explain what you did with the Gentiles and the three means, three power centers by which you did this, what was the result? Well, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Illyricum, you uh, wouldn't know what that is, but remember when Yugoslavia existed? <laughs> well, you know, today it's Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro, it's all of those countries after Tito died. Yugoslavia blew apart and fragmented into a whole bunch of countries. But it's that whole area there, what used to be Yugoslavia. So what is Paul saying? If you, if you, if you took out a map and you looked at that, what you would see is Paul's ministry was in the eastern Mediterranean. Key cities throughout the eastern Mediterranean. He planted key churches in key cities throughout the eastern Mediterranean. So what Paul is doing is, he worked from, I have reason to be proud of my work for Christ as an apostle to the Gentiles. Here's the power by which I did this. And here is the geographical proof of what God did through me. The entire Eastern Mediterranean is now permeated by key churches in key cities in the Eastern Mediterranean world. 
His first missionary journey was in AD 48. He dies by Nero's execution order in AD 68. That's 20 years of ministry. And he's not done yet because this is in the late 50s. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing work. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have the Internet. He didn't have a whole cadre of television people following him around. He didn't put things on television. He didn't, I mean, you know, all the things modern evangelists did. He walked the Roman roads and had a key group, key cadre of disciples, Timothy, Titus, Silas, Luke, and a few others that we, we, we mentioned in the Testament. He's not boasting. What he's doing is he's showing, look at the work of God. When he's writing this book at this point, look at the work of God in the last 14 years. Now, when you start putting that in historical context, you just say, wow, that is amazing. What Paul has accomplished by the grace of God, the word and deed, through the power of signs and wonders, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul must, he must bring in a passage of Scripture. <laughs> so he brings in a passage of Scripture. Thus I, I'm in verse 20, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand, according to Isaiah 52, verse 15. He said, I don't go where somebody else is going. I don't go where Peter's been. I'm not going where Andrew's been. I'm not going where Bartholomew's been. I'm going to brand new places where nobody's ever been. And then he quotes, just like Isaiah 52, 15 said we should do. <laughs> I mean, he always brings in scripture. And here he brings this in. I just, I mean, I love that. I, I know I spent a little more time on this than maybe you think I should have. But I love this little paragraph. Because Paul is reflecting at this point, as he's writing to these four or five house churches in Rome, reflecting on what God has done so far in his ministry. And it's, it's, it's it obviously, when you read it and, and see those key phrases where we try to emphasize, he really is giving praise to God. God did this through me. Because they're back. Look at what it, for what Christ accomplished through me. I'm merely the instrument. Okay? Now, verse 22. I want to start this with a question. I'm going to use a, a question around language we use in the 21st century. Here's the question. Did Paul have a strategic plan? Yes. Yes. Was God's Did it have a mission statement? Did it have a vision statement? Did it have core values? Did it have then, pardon? Not that we know. <laughs> That's what we know. <laughs> Did it have an operational plan? Yeah. You know, obviously, I'm using the language we use today. I think he had a clear mission. And I think he probably, again, he wouldn't even understand what we mean, but if we would say, Paul, what's your personal mission statement? I don't, he wouldn't know what to say to that. But if he was, what's your mission? Oh, to proclaim Christ, Christ to the Gentiles. That's my mission. And so everything he did flows from that. But his strategy, his strategy, and he's always open to the Holy Spirit changing his strategy. 
But his strategy was to plant key churches in key cities in the Eastern Mediterranean world. Now he's about to tell the church in Rome, I'm going west. I'm now going to plant key churches in the Western Mediterranean. But how do we know that? Because he says in verse 24, I hope to go in passing as I go to Spain. I want to visit you guys on my way to Spain. Now remember, Spain, and you know that geography, don't you? Spain's the Western Mediterranean. And Spain had become a very, very important part of the Roman Empire in the first century. I mean, if you've ever seen Gladiator, that good movie, that, that's really a good movie. Because it's, it's heroism and honor. Well, anyway. But the guy who's a hero in that is from Spain. And a lot of the key gladiators that were from Spain because they raised great horses. And they had luscious vineyards, especially olive vineyards, which is the best thing from the Mediterranean world. For years, years, I got Spanish olives. And then where I got them, they stopped carrying them. So I found olives from Greece. Even better. Real big. Because I fell in love with olives when I would make my trip to Israel. By the way, I'm going to Israel on 24. I have 25 people signed up for it already. Unbelievable. Uh, I, I hope this isn't too far off. Nothing is far off when it comes from you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. You never fit me that. <laughs> he talks about, thus I make that my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Mm -hmm. Why was he concerned about building on someone else's foundation? I think two reasons. Number one, he he's trying to be very strategic. I don't, and I'll put it the way we would make it. He doesn't want to waste his time, which is so precious, where someone else has already planted the seed. I want to do something. I, my strategy with it, and this, I think it is a strategic decision on his part. My strategy is to go where no one else has been. And so I'm not going to build on somebody else. And the second thing is that could create some division. That could create some, some disunity and dysfunction. And he talks a little bit about that in the Corinthian letters, where the Corinthian church was divided into four factions. Well, we're followers of Paul. Well, we're followers of Apollos. We're followers of Peter. And then this real sanctimonious group, we're followers of Jesus. You know, so, so I think that's part of the reason his strategy is, is focusing on that. He does not want to duplicate what others are doing because his time is limited. He's getting older, and it is, it is absolutely essential that he maximize the time he has in the virgin areas of the Roman Empire. That's why he's headed to Spain. I'm, I just think it's incredibly insightful for you and me today. Many of you, I know a number of you are retired, some of you aren't, but wherever you work, whether you have one or not, your leadership has a strategy. They have a plan. They have a strategic plan. I'm trying to get my church to adopt the strategic plan, which they've pretty much done now. Because I think churches need to think strategically. And they need to plan strategically. And they need to organize their operational plan, which is their annual budget, around that plan. And so we're, we're doing that at our church. But Paul was like that. He's always thinking strategically. Now, remember, when you look at his missionary journeys, 
He was always open to the spirit changing the direction. No, I don't want you to go here, Paul. I want you to go here. Oh, okay. I'm still going to do the same thing. Yep, that's what you're going to do in this place. I want you to do it here. That's what happens at the end of the, the beginning of the second missionary journey. He wants to go back and head into, into Galatia and up north. And he says, no, I want you to head west. Troas, some guy say, hey, come on over here. And he heads into Europe. Did I see another hand on the left corner? No, okay, no, good. Verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. This is a demonstrative pronoun. What's it referring to? What he just mentioned. My strategy of going to places where Christ has never been named. But now, notice the two synth clauses. Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I find that extraordinary. The first since clause. Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Like, Wait a minute, Paul. There are hundreds of thousands of people that haven't heard the gospel. But that's not my strategy. My strategy is that in every single human being in the Eastern Mediterranean world, my strategy is to plant key churches in key cities. I've done that. Ephesus, Athens, Thessalonica, Philippi. You know, you start going down the list. I planted the key churches. Now I'm headed west. So you have planting seeds and just let, let it grow and, and then go for the next place. Exactly. And everyone, we know he did this. Every one of those churches he planted, he discipled a group of leaders. They take it from here. It's called, Peter, Paul calls this in, in his letter to the ministry of multiplication. You keep, bring people to the Lord, disciple key people, and leave. Let them take it from there. I just want to, I just so excited. Because he really had a plan. I was open to God's sovereign redirection of the plan, which he did, but he had a plan. And to be helped on my journey, I'm in the middle of verse 24, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. How could they help Paul? Financially? Travel. Travel, hospitality, prayer. Encouragement and just telling him the fruit of his work. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the best thing to help him. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, he has this Clear sense, his strategy has tactics to it. And those tactics are, I got a plan, I'm going to work that plan, but I'm going to rely on other people to help me. And part of that tactics is, you guys are going to help me as I'm headed west. I know you're going to pray for me. I know you're going to probably give me some financial help. I know some of you are going to put me up in your house. And maybe you have some relatives over in Spain. Paul, when you get there, look up John. He owns 16 horses, and he'll share one of those horses with you. I'm making that up. I don't know. But it's that, it's that kind of thing. So it's just this, Paul is always interacting, strategy, strategy, tactics to achieve the objective. What's the objective? To reach Gentiles for Christ. Bad makers back in those days. Sure. No, they aren't like what you find on Google, but yeah, yeah, they did. Oh, yeah. Rome. Rome relied very much on maps. They were always updating their maps. Most of them weren't really that good, but they were, yeah, very much so. Very much so. 
If you ever go to Jerusalem, well, I won't get into that. Okay, verse 26. Good question here. Uh, isn't the idea of horses and using horses for on that kind of large scale started later on with the rise of Islam, but before that it was not as much? Yeah, not, you know, the, the gladiator uses horses, but it was not. This is actually even after, uh, supposedly. Yeah, awesome. they well, they horses were used, but not not to the, they very much in the ancient world earlier, uh, in, in even warfare and so on. But yeah, that comes a little bit later, where the extensive use of horses. Um, the Egyptians were using the horses on chariots. That's right. Never been actually the chariot was introduced to to Egypt by the Hyksos, who came into the Delta earlier in the Middle Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but horses and, you know, it, it, during the empire period of Rome, primary, the primary function of horses, there was a military function, but didn't have a cavalry like we think of. Oh, yeah. But was for entertainment. So, how, did, how was Paul actually traveling? By foot. Sure. Oh, do you mean on the Mediterranean? Or, when he's on the land, he's following Roman Rome. But he's he was walking. On foot. No, yeah, he's walking. Oh, he does not ride a horse. He's walking. Mm -hmm. All right, now we'll get into some geography. Are you with me? Everybody with me? Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor. Um, oh, I forgot verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Now Paul's writing this from the city of Khan. And he says, before I head west, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Why is he going back to Jerusalem? To give the offering. That he's been taken. Macedonia is up north. That's where Thessalonica is. Philippi, they're in Macedonia. Achaia is the province where Athens is, Corinth is. So he's just summarizing the two. These Greeks have given me money for the people in Jerusalem. Because remember, the Judean church is under intense persecution. We talked about that much earlier. If you study the book of Acts, you see that. The Jerusalem church, these are Jews who come to have faith in Jesus. They lose their jobs. They lose their property. They lose almost everything. They are in under intense persecution and suffering. So Paul takes an offering to support the Judean church. And so he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Because Macedonia and Achaia have made contribution of the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. But they're pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. Notice what he's saying there. These Gentiles and Macedonian priests owe it to the Jewish Christians. What? What do you mean he owe it to him? Why did they owe a debt to the Jews in Judea, Jerusalem? He explains it, middle of verse 27. For if the, if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. What spiritual blessing? Remember what Jesus said. To the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4, salvation comes through the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. All the early leaders of the church were Jews. And the Jewish people are the people of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. And we Gentiles participate in the new covenant through faith. That's what Paul's talking about. We Gentiles owe a debt to the Jews. That's why, man, I am really concerned in the United States about the growing anti-Semitism in this country. 
I really am concerned about that. Because Genesis 12.3 says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And if this country starts turning on the Jews, God will take his hand of blessing off this country quickly. He has already. So you have, you're going to have to be sensitive to that. And that's what Paul is saying here. They're doing that because they understand the spiritual debt they owe. So they're going to help meet those physical needs. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this, taking the offering of Jerusalem, and have delivered them what was collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Strategic plan. When I deliver the offering, I'm headed west. Now, that's all, you know this, but I'll just remind you, that's going to get interrupted. Because when Paul's in Jerusalem, he's going to create quite a stir. And he's going to be taken to Caesarea, and he's going to get to Rome as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. But that he doesn't know that yet. So he ends this, I appeal you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Did you see that little phrase? Strive together with me in prayer. You ever look at your prayer life as striving? That's how my wife looks at so much of her praying. Striving for the sake of others. You know, our children, our grandchildren, people we know and care about, people we love, as well as just things. My wife prays for people you would never, ever, ever think she should pray for. She prays, I know you're all Republicans in this room, she prays for Democrats. Can you imagine doing that in 2022 to pray for a Democrat? I mean, evangelical Christians in the United States of America think that is almost the unpardonable sin. <laughs> I'll never forget. Can I tell you a quick story? It, it, it shocked my socks off. This is, goes way back in the 1980s, I think it was. Senator Edward Kennedy was one of the, the champions of the Senate, the Democratic Party, involved in a lot of key things. And he was uh, sponsoring some legislation that was, was something that nobody we thought could support. And Peggy said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put him on my prayer list. So she writes his name, Senator Edward Kennedy, on the prayer list. And I just looked at her. I said, honey, I really appreciate you doing that because I was so angry and so frustrated with what he was saying and representing and I'm angry and frustrated and all turned up. I'm losing sleep over it. I don't, I dietary habits. I'm exaggerating. Oh, that's not true. But anyway, and so what is she, she doesn't get excited. She, I'm going to put in my prayer list. As far as I know, until he died of brain cancer, my wife prayed for Senator Edward Kennedy once a week because her prayer list was long. Do you think that's amazing? Striving, striving in prayer for Senator Kennedy. Well, you don't even know what I'm talking about. So anyway, this is what he prayed. Notice, notice he, now the content. What does he want them to pray about? That's in verse 31. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Oh. He was aware of something. 
I'm headed back to Judea to live this offering. I have a lot of enemies there. Who were his enemies in Judea? The Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. Pray, pray that I may be delivered. He understood that. Number two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That this this offering which I'm taking to them may be acceptable. It may meet their needs. Because I don't know the depths of their needs. So it's, I mean, I just, again, you, you look at what, what, what's of concern to Paul against my enemies and that what I'm taking will be sufficient to meet their needs. Acceptable to them. All right. I was delusional when I said we might be able to finish the book. <laughs> we have one more chapter to go. Now, there is, in this chapter, there are a lot of names. I know a lot of names. So we're going to go through these fairly quickly, unless you really ask me specifically. A number of these people, we don't know who they are. But some we do. Yes, Joe. I interrupt. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Since you referenced it, could you remind us of the timeline? So this, as you mentioned, when he goes to Jerusalem, it's like Acts 21, right? It, it would be getting to the end book of Acts, correct. Right. And so then when he's arrested and taken to Rome, I forget, does he, I mean, is he ever released? Or is that? That's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, the Roman uh, Empire, and their codex of laws, they were very focused on due process. Your accusers have to show up within two years of your indictment. Uh, as far as we know, Joel, and that would have been key members of the Sanhedrin, they never came to Rome to file and be the witnesses against Paul. If that was the case, which we infer it probably was, he was released. That's why right now, Joel, the current consensus among New Testament expositors is that Paul was released, that Acts 28, he would have been in that under sort of a quasi-house arrest situation for two years and was released. There is extra-biblical evidence that Paul did get to Spain. A number of the early fathers, Ignatius, um, uh, Justin, uh, Irenaeus, and others speak of Paul being in the Western Mediterranean. And it came down when I say down, I mean he's going east then along the southern part of the Mediterranean, stops at Crete, and goes back into Illyricum. And in Illyricum, which would have been old Yugoslavia, he's rearrested, taken to Rome, put on trial, and executed in the fall of AD 68. So that ministry, uh, after he was released in that first imprisonment, that ministry would have been about two and a half years, give or take a little. We're a little uncertain some of that because we have extra biblical evidence. We do not have biblical evidence for that. So I think he really was released. There's no, because, well, it doesn't, some because the things he talks about in the pastoral epistles, First Timothy and Titus, the geography he speaks of has nothing to do with his other missionary journeys. So it, it, that's why some call this his fourth missionary journey, is what is alluded to in the pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy and Titus, and the extra-biblical material. 
That's one of the 9,682 things I want to find out when I get to heaven. <laughs> Paul, what did you do? Because I think you were released. Right? Yeah, I was, Jim. I'm going to tell you what I did. <laughs> I don't think he'll call me by my first name. <laughs> there'll be 9,752 million other people that want to talk to Paul. Jesus would. What's that? Jesus would call you by first name. Right? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Let's do something controversial before we leave today. Verse 1 of chapter 16. There's a woman there. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria. Sancria is very close to Corinth in Greece, kind of close to Corinth, right along the coast there. Paul gets a haircut there. <laughs> I'm sure if you go back in the book of, of Acts, he gets a haircut there. Uh, presumably he's entering his Nazarite vow, but he, he anyway. And the word that's used there is diakonos. We get a word deacon from that. Hmm. Would you almost notice something else? Welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So he, Paul, uses two terms to describe this woman. One, servant, diakonos. Two, a patron, prostasis, a term that speaks of financial assistance, of hospitality. So no matter how you cut this, and whether we get into the debate, did she have a formal position in the church? We don't know that. You, you can't build the position, you can't build the argument for deaconesses on Phoebe. That may or may not be the case. But the important thing is, this is what's important. The important thing is she was a very important leader, quote, unquote, in the church. Whether it was a formal role, it certainly wasn't any kind of a vocational role, but a formal role, that's not the point. And the second thing about this is she is probably the one carrying this letter. She's alluded to at the end of the book. She's probably the one that carried the book of Romans to the churches in Rome. So, again, when we get into a discussion and debate about a formal official position, official position in the church, that's not the point here. The point is Paul trusted this woman. Paul elevates this woman and has remarkable things to say about her. And listen, this is always important to remember this. Jesus Christ launched an important social transformation, the liberation of women. I don't mean political or I don't mean getting the right to vote. That's not what I mean. Because in the ancient world, women were considered substandard human beings. And when you read how the Roman Empire treated women, let alone the ancient world, because what did Jesus preach? Equality at the cross. You read Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither Jew, Gentile, slave-free, man, or woman. Spiritual equality. And the church begins to live this out. <laughs> where women are given more and more of a role in ministry and preaching the doctrine that at the cross we're equal. And you add to that what Genesis 1 teaches, men and women are both created in the image of God. So in the teachings of the early church, two propositions are taught. 
equality in being in the image of God, equality at the cross. I'm not talking about political equality. That's not what I'm talking about. And so you see this, and remember, if you go back to Luke chapter 8, the primary financial supporters of Jesus' ministry are women. Because there in Luke, Luke lists all the women that supported Jesus. And the key financial supporters of his ministry were women. Some of them had very, their husbands were very important people in the empire. I'm saying all this because that's, that's the only observation to make. Because in this list that starts with verse 3 on, eight women are listed. And Paul wants to give greetings to these women who are playing important roles in the churches and five house churches in Rome. You know, Jesus, or God, said, I will create and help me. And then from the cross, Jesus said, Behold. I think that elevates the status of women. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And anybody who they just don't have the faith and knowledge of God's will for women. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to add to that. I mean, I mean it's. I, I referred to this book before. Tom Holland is a British historian who's written a book called Dominion, How Christianity Revolutionized the World. And he is not a Christian. He's writing a historical perspective. And it's an amazing book. It was published in 2019. It's an amazing book because what Holland does is he showed the social transformation that Christianity brings. And that's an important thing for you and me to understand. This doesn't come on Islam. Mark knows that. This doesn't come from, this doesn't come from Hinduism. It doesn't come from Buddhism. This comes from Christ. Because the transformation of the human race is through the gospel. And it has, as Chuck Colson used to say before he died, you change culture by changing people. You don't change people by changing culture. Passing laws doesn't change people. It coerces them. You can punish them and throw them in jail, but the social, the, the true transformation is from the inside out. That's what Jesus is doing. And so you see, you see this in, in a chapter like this. You would not see this in Rome, where Rome is elevating women, and, and here Paul's doing that, and he singles out women who have a significant role in these Roman churches. I'd like to do one thing before we, we stop. I want you to, with me, I want to identify the house churches. In verse, now remember, you know what a house church is. There weren't buildings. They met in homes. And so you see, look at verse 5, the church in their house. Whose church? Priscilla and Aquila. And then if you let your eye go down to end of verse 10, to all the fair family of Aristobulus, there's another house church. And then 3, the third one, is in the middle of verse 12, the family of Narcissus. Then you go down to verse 14, greet Ascritus, there's the fourth house church. And then verse 15 is the fifth house church. So Paul is grouping these greetings around the five house churches in Rome. And some of the individuals in these house churches, we know who they are. We're still on a quote, for example. We don't know who they are, but a couple of them, they're really interesting. 
because a couple of them are identified with the Roman Empire. And so it's kind of an interesting thing that we'll do next week because I'm almost out of time here. Uh, but my commitment, my goal, my strategy, my strategic plan, using the language I used to talk about Paul, is to finish this book next week. <laughs> but it's all dependent on you not asking too many questions. No, I'm just kidding. That's not it's, but I want you, I want you to have that freedom. It, we will fin I don't know. It isn't hard. There's nothing difficult about this chapter. But I want to make a couple of comments about it. It's a remarkable chapter. There's all these names of these people. And don't you find it interesting, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, that some of these people are named? We don't even know who they are. But God does. And when we get to heaven, these are going to be pretty important people. Because they played a really strategic role in Rome, center of the empire. At the time Paul's writing this, at least five key churches in Rome. Isn't that amazing? The center of the empire. There are five churches. I don't know. I get kind of excited. About, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class. But it's, it's just exciting to see, you know, no matter what is going on in the world, God's doing his work, doing his plan. And that should be encouraging for us. I think all of them are home churches? or there All house churches. All of them, right? All of them. Yeah, there's nothing, there are, there's nothing beyond house churches until you get into the second century. How big were they? How many were? were oh, I, it's really. I mean, rough. Just, well, I mean, I mean, some of these people are very influential, wealthy people. They would have had, um, a state wouldn't be the right way, right word, but very large open areas in their home. That was like, you know, gated area. We call them gated communities today. But gated areas, but yeah, a pretty large area where people would gather. So, you know, certainly not hundreds and hundreds, but dozens in some of these. I must quit. <laughs> Real quick, is there documentation where Paul, he had been in so many cities, he wrote letters to as a heresy before his conversion? And we have nothing like that, no. Everything he did as a Pharisee before he meets Christ in the Damascus Road in AD 36 would, would, have, would have been only in Judea. I, there's no evidence that Paul traveled beyond. As a matter of fact, most of the Pharisees did not travel because they're, they're, they lived in Jerusalem. That was their ministry because they're in the Sanhedrin. I've got to quit. So, Father, we thank you for this uh, time together around the Word of God. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his transparency, his honesty, how he saw himself as an apostle of the Gentiles, how he understood you, know, you were using him. He was your instrument to reach the Gentiles. But Lord, I also encouraged by the clarity of what Paul says. He had a strategic plan. He really had a clearly laid out plan of what he was doing in the Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire. And that should be an important uh, and a very important insight for us. As churches, leaders of our churches, and so on, we should have strategic plans. We should think strategically. All in dependence on you and your guidance through your spirit and so on. But our role is to have plans, to have a plan, to work that plan in dependence on you. Certainly Paul did that. Next week we'll talk about some of these key individuals, look a little bit at these house churches, in order to help us to understand what was going on in the first century. You are transforming the world through the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're still in that business today, 2,000 years later. May we be faithful, may we be energized, may we be empowered 
to do what you're calling us to do as your representative. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.